Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. One of the byproducts of doing a show like this for as long as I've been doing it is that it's really hard to shut off your brain. I'm always thinking about topic ideas, ways to link facts and trivia together, reading a lot of books, talking to lots of people, and otherwise trying to come up with a constant stream of things that we can talk about. The result of all this researching and thinking and writing are some ideas and perspective on music, music history, how music is made, how it's consumed, how it's distributed, and how seemingly small things have led to big changes. So that's, that's one thing. Another is the opinions formed by observing the opinions of others. You know, why do people like some things and hate others? And another is a list of ideas that aren't quite fully formed yet. It seems like I've almost grasped a concept, but it doesn't quite feel right yet. I feel that there's a germ of truth in there somewhere, but it's just, you know, not there yet. I've also learned that when you're not sure about something, source the crowd. You might not like the answers, but it's better than living in your own head. So let me bounce a few of these things off you, and you can tell me if I'm onto something or if I'm off base, or if I've, you know, completely lost the plot. I call this episode Theories, Thoughts, and Half-Baked Ideas. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. There's Edwin, best known for his work with I, Mother Earth, but that's from his solo album, Another Spin Around the Sun. He's singing about testing out theories, which is exactly what we're about to do. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and I'm hoping this will turn out to be an interactive program. I'm going to present some theories that I've been working on. Some are complete and I think rock solid. Others still need, um, how should we describe this, peer review. And a few others are, on, if I'm honest, on pretty shaky ground. I'll present these ideas, and hopefully you'll tell me if I'm onto something or if I'm headed in the wrong direction. And I'm always looking for your input, alan at alancross.ca, okay? Here we go. The first theory I'd like to present is the idea that grunge ruined alternative rock. Now, my career in alt-rock radio began in 1986, and up until then, my exposure to alternative music had been pretty limited. So, frankly, I was rather lucky to have been hired in the first place. But within minutes of arriving, though, I kept thinking, where has all this music been all my life? The 80s were a fascinating time for alt-rock. People involved in the scene, from the bands and the managers to the labels and the DJs to the record stores and fans, reveled in their outsiderness. We wanted nothing to do with the mainstream, which was fine because they wanted nothing to do with us. It was all very, very tribal. And we liked it that way. The few commercial alt-rock radio stations that existed back then were connected only by anecdotes. You see, none of the radio industry magazines published alternative charts or tracked airplay. 
Each station simply served up the music it thought its local audience would like. And that's why my station, CFNY in Toronto, sounded so much different than, say, WFNX in Boston or K-Rock in Los Angeles. Consequently, a staggering breadth of music made the playlists. There was technopop and industrial, every conceivable flavor of punk, early rap and hip-hop, goth, British indie, remixes that made you want to dance, like Venus from Bananarama. There was ethereal dream pop, and yes, there was a smattering of guitar rock. If you go through the radio playlists for, say, late 1986, you'll find Peter Gabriel, The Smiths, R.E.M., New Order, Depeche Mode, Paul Simon's Graceland album, The Cure, Steve Winwood. There was also reggae from UB40, alt-pop funk from Level 42, along with a ton of remixes of their songs. There was mainstream stuff like Invisible Touch from Genesis and modern folky stuff from people like Bruce Coburn. This kind of variety was typical for alt-rock stations all across North America. No two stations were exactly the same. Each had its own local flavor. This was one of the first songs I played during my first shift at my new radio job. And the preference among the staff was to play this extended mix. The Psychedelic Furs and Heartbreak Beats, the extended mix. Back then, the announcers had a tremendous amount of leeway in choosing the music that we played. And many of us found these extended mixes to be better than the album or the single mix. That they were longer, too, helped. It gave us time to file records, answer the request line, and think about the next record we were going to play. But as artistically fulfilling as this may sound, it really wasn't all that great for ratings. To get big ratings, you need to appeal to the greatest number of people and to get them to listen as often as possible and for as long as possible. And as much as we still wanted to believe that the world craves good music like this, it doesn't. You see, while there may be millions of us hardcore music fans, there are billions of people who just want songs they can sing along to in the car. And since a radio station's revenues depend on ratings, higher ratings equals more revenues, Commercial alt-rock stations struggled along from month to month, always with the specter of a format change looming overhead. Salaries were low to the point of poverty, trust me. But these places were staffed by hardcore music fans, people who were on a mission to deliver good music to the masses. I know it kind of sounds naive and stupid to say this, but it really was all about the music, man. And in retrospect, some consider this to be the golden age of commercial alt-rock radio. But then came grunge. Hints that the world was ready for a change came in March 1990, when 25,000 people rioted outside a record store in Los Angeles as Depeche Mode prepared for an autograph session around the release of their Violator album. Wait a second, a, a, a riot for an alternative band? Okay, what was going on here? Then the next summer, came the first Lollapalooza. This is 1991. Along with founding band Jane's Addiction, the lineup included Susie and the Banshees, Living Color, Ice Tea and Body Count, Butthole Surfers, Rollins Band, and some weirdo group that was never going to go anywhere called Nine Inch Nails. The tour was a modest success, despite many, many, many unsold tickets. I was given a big stack by the promoter, told to hand them out. I had a hard time getting rid of them. But the fact that upwards of 20,000 people paid to see all these decidedly non-mainstream bands convinced promoters to do it again. So they did. By the time the 1992 tour started, exactly one year later, 
alternative was no longer an alternative to anything. It was well on its way to supplanting the mainstream. And the thing that did it was grunge. Thanks to riff-ready songs from Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and especially Nirvana, alt-rock began to coalesce around hard guitar rock. Okay, sure, there was still room for the odd electronic bass band and ballad-loving chanteuse, but as the record labels piled on and as record sales went through the roof, the focus of all of alternative music settled on guitar rock. Okay, so it wasn't all grunge. There were other left-leaning bands that didn't use drop-D tuning. And there were plenty of women on the playlist, too. But the overwhelming majority of acts were guitar rockers, with most of them being grunge, or at least grunge-ish. Guitar-based alt-rock bands, led by the grungers, continued to sell records and concert tickets in ever-increasing amounts. Everybody piled on. Alt-rock stations proliferated across the continent as broadcasting companies jumped into serving this new, growing, and very hungry alternative nation. This resulted in industry magazines starting to compile charts and monitoring airplay. Now, when a program director in, say, Des Moines, Iowa, wondered what songs he or she should add to the playlist, the very first thought was, I wonder what the big stations are doing. They would look at a place like K-Rock in Los Angeles. A quick check of the charts, and suddenly Des Moines was following L.A. instead of trying to come up with something that would work in Des Moines. The result was an unstoppable march towards a homogeneity in sound. Grunge was so big and so popular that it effectively became alt-rock. And those varied sounds that were so big in the 80s? Largely squeezed out in favor of big guitars and screaming vocalists. Yes, there were still acts like the Beastie Boys and the Chili Peppers and Ministry and Alanis Morissette, but the primary focus remained guitar music. Now, please do not get me wrong. Grunge was great. I cannot imagine a universe without Nirvana or cousins like the Pumpkins. Not only did they make great music, but this was alt-rock with training wheels. Not only did they make great music, but, consider this, it was also alt-rock with training wheels that lured people in with its different yet familiar approach to traditional guitar rock. Once somebody bought a Nirvana record, they were sucked inside the alternative nation. Millions were inspired to go deeper into alt-rock and beyond and found their lives richer for it. When it came to commercial alt-rock radio, well, grunge became the foundation of its sound for many, many, many years. Instead of taking a chance on something truly new and truly different, it was safer from a ratings point of view to play something grunge or grunge-ish, that is, guitar-based, preferably with drop tuning. And as listeners empowered themselves with iPods and MP3s and torrents, and eventually streaming, Stations tighten their playlists more and more each year to keep those ratings and revenues up. Nationally and internationally published charts and airplane monitors only serve to reinforce this circle-the-wagons mentality. For a while, it actually looked kind of grim. The original grunge bands died off, and we were left with dreck-like new metal. The grunge well basically went dry, and for a while, in the late 90s, there was nothing concrete to replace it. Happily, things have loosened up, and indie rock has exploded. Alt-rock radio has weaned itself at least a little bit from grunge guitars. The variety of sounds is much greater than it's been in quite some time. In fact, you might make the argument that things have swung too far in the opposite direction, that there are too few big guitar bands in alt-rock today. Will we ever go back to this kind of alt-rock radio that we heard in the pre-grunge days? Probably not. 
The demands and listening habits of the public have changed irrevocably in the last 40 years. We cannot and we should not go back. Commercial alt-rock radio of the 80s was an era in media whose time has passed. If you were around then, remember it fondly. If you weren't, then maybe go back and search out what alt-rock radio was like back then. Above all, try not to say dumb things like, in my day, music was so much better. We all need to remember that every generation has the right to believe that the music of their youth is the greatest music of all time. This is an argument that you will never win, even though we've heard the same complaints about the music of young people since, and I'm serious about this, since the days of Aristotle, who was always complaining about the music the youth of ancient Greece seemed to enjoy. Soundgarden, my way from 1994's Super Unknown album. When we return, I want to float an idea of how we've done a terrible job of developing superstar acts in the 21st century. Hang tight. I call this program Theories, Thoughts, and Half-Baked Ideas. It's a short summary of some of the things that have occupied my mind when it comes to our music. And one of the concepts that's vexed me greatly is how badly we've done when it comes to creating new superstar acts in the 21st century. We still have superstars, but they aren't anywhere as big as they used to be. Let me run a few ideas past you, starting with Alternative's addiction to grunge and 90s music in general. That music in that decade was so good and so popular that audiences kept demanding to hear it. And so many of the acts from that era never went away. Green Day, Blink-182, Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins, Foo Fighters, even bands that ceased to exist. Stone Temple Pilots, Nirvana, Beastie Boys, for example, continued to be extremely popular with fans. That made it very hard for new artists with new sounds to break through. All these older bands were still sucking up much oxygen and a lot of airplay. Meanwhile, the industry changed. Selling pieces of plastic went by the wayside. Record stores started to close. And when streaming took hold in the 2000s, all the power swung away from the star-making machinery behind the popular song to the individual. The old cultural gatekeepers, record labels, radio stations, record stores, music magazines, and video channels, saw their powers of persuasion greatly diminished. They could no longer create consensus among the public about what was good music and what was worth buying and listening to and promoting to the upper reaches of superstardom. Instead, each of us became our own music directors. With just a few pokes at our phones, we have instant access to more than 70 million songs. That has spread everyone's interests and tastes and influences wider than ever before in human history, which is a good thing. In fact, it's a great thing. But it's been hard on both the recorded music industry and artists. And here's what I mean by that. Current acts now have to compete with the entire musical history of the human race. That makes it much, much harder to break through. And it's harder than ever to get big, not just because of increased competition, but because it's impossible to achieve the same kind of consensus about good music that we used to have in the pre-streaming days. Try to make a list of acts that have emerged this century capable of filling an arena. There aren't that many. Those who can still draw arena or stadium-sized crowds first appeared in the 1990s or the 80s, or the 70s, or if we look at the Rolling Stones and Paul McCartney, the 1960s. So there's some homework for you and your friends. 
create a list of rock bands who have appeared since 2000 that are capable of drawing tens of thousands of fans to a single gig. And I'll start. Here's Arcade Fire. Moving on to my next theory, streaming is ruining music. I've actually done some talks on this, including at a conference in Poland. It goes like this. Thanks to streaming, recorded music has been liberated from all its physical limitations. The whole of human musical history exists as pure data, accessible by anyone with an internet connection. And this is great, right? Absolutely, yes, but not entirely. The size and nature of the physical containers we use to construct to hold our music, and here I'm talking about records, CDs, and tapes, created certain patterns of behavior. For example, we had to work for a reasonably long time to earn enough money to buy these pieces of plastic. When we bought music, we created a financial relationship with it. We'd listen to these albums over and over and over again until we absorbed all the music, even the songs that we might not have liked at first. Otherwise, a feeling developed that we had wasted our money. It was, damn it, I spent 15 or $20 on this CD. I'm going to learn to like the whole thing. When we listen to music from a physical format, we also have additional resources. Album artwork, lyric sheets, liner notes, and all those came with a container. Not so much in the digital world. And there was always this scarcity when it came to physical music. You could only afford to buy so much. That was one thing. And even the biggest record stores might have... 100,000 albums in stock. Compare that to the 70 million songs available on the streaming music services today. Streaming is not about possession. It's about access and convenience. And this has resulted in some very different interactions with music. Technology is not only changing the way we listen to music and how we value it, but it's also warping the very nature of the music itself. To explain what I mean, we need to look at some numbers. Data analysis shows that 24% of streaming listeners will skip to the next song if they don't like it or don't recognize it within the first five seconds, 24% of them. Another 29% will bail after 10 seconds, and another 35% will be gone by the time the song is 30 seconds old. This is important, that 30-second number, because a streaming service does not pay out for a song until 30 seconds have passed. In other words, you have to listen to the first 30 or 31 seconds before anybody gets paid. People skipping a song drives down its appeal with the algorithms, thereby preventing from songs bubbling up on playlists. See where we're going with this? This means that producers and songwriters now throw everything they can at the first 30 seconds of a song in order to hold our attention. All right, how are they doing that? Well, shorter intros, putting the choruses up front adding as many sugar-high hooks as possible before the song is half a minute old. Anything to drag us to that 30-second mark and to prevent us from hitting that skip button so everybody can get paid. Songs are getting shorter. Spotify's algorithms are increasingly favoring shorter songs due to the fact that more people stick with them longer. In 2000, the average length of a song on the Billboard Hot 100 was four minutes, and none were under two and a half minutes. Today, the average song on the same chart is 3 minutes and 30 seconds, so a decrease of half a minute. And the number of songs under two and a half minutes has increased year after year after year. If you're an artist 
you are thinking about writing shorter songs because the chances of listeners cycling through more of your songs is greater. More listens equals more money. You can even take it to the extreme. A British band called The Pocket Gods released an album in 2020 called 300 by 30. It featured 298 songs, none of which were longer than 40 seconds. I mean, why bother writing anything longer if you only get paid for the first 30 seconds, right? And so much for the 10-minute rock epic. Why spend all that time writing and recording such a long song when you're going to get paid the same as someone who wrote a song lasting 40 seconds? Or in the case of, let's say, Lil Nas X and Old Town Road, one minute and 57 seconds. Here's another analogy. Remember that Cinerama shot in Lawrence of Arabia that begins with a dot off in the distance, which then grows and grows into a camel train? What a, what a fantastically powerful way to start a movie. But what's the point of creating a shot like that if people are just watching on a phone? With streaming, it's all about individual songs, specifically singles. Album tracks? They don't get much love at all. So why bother recording albums? Hold that thought, because I want to expand on that in just a bit. Here are the aforementioned pocket gods with this 32-second ditty. You can burn records, but you can't burn my streams. You can protest as much as you want, but you won't destroy the streaming machine. The Pocket Gods with You Can't Burn Streams, over and done in 32 seconds. Now, let's expand on the idea of the future of the album. Are we coming to the end of collections of songs written to be enjoyed as part of a larger work and listened to in a specific order at the same time? I don't think so, at least not in the short term, for a couple of reasons. First of all, albums are still the currency of the recorded music industry. Contracts are based on albums. So many awards are based on albums. Record stores sell albums. And although the number of CDs sold is falling every year, they and vinyl LPs will be with us for a while yet. However, there are signs that the album is starting to fade away. In the streaming world, it's important that you keep your fans continuously engaged. So that means releasing a steady drip, drip, drip of new songs. That's slowly replacing the process of spending a year recording an album and then touring behind it for three years. Much of the hip-hop world has got this figured out. It's revolutionary, right? Well, not really. This emphasis on singles over albums is a throwback to the way things used to be before about 1965. Up until then, rock and roll and pop music lived as 7-inch 45 RPM singles. Albums were reserved for proper music. Classical recordings, jazz, soundtracks, Broadway cast recordings, and so on. And yes, acts like Elvis Presley and the Beatles released albums early in their careers, but they were mostly collections of previously released singles with some B-sides and filler thrown in. But then things began to shift around 1965. The Beatles, Bob Dylan, and a few others looked at the album and thought, I can work with this. Instead of releasing just three and a half minute singles, they began to write longer songs, more complex songs. And they began to write collections of songs released all together in a carefully sequenced order. Then, on June 1st, 1967, the Beatles released the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. Yes, it featured a bunch of singles, 
but it was designed, explicitly designed, to be listened to as a whole and in one sitting. The only time you stopped was when you flipped over the record. The larger palette was very attractive to other artists. It also was very attractive to record labels because the profit margins were so much higher on albums than they were on singles. And thus, rock and pop moved away from singles and into the realm of releasing albums. And we've been living in that world ever since. But now, thanks to streaming and playlists and this renewed emphasis on single songs, we seem to be heading back to the way things were before about 1965. Where is this trend headed? What will it mean for artists and songwriters in the recorded music industry and music fans? Well, we'll see. I have two more theories I want to fly past you, and we'll get to those in just a second. So far in this episode, I've presented some theories that are reasonably well fleshed out. At least, I think so. And I want to wrap things up with a couple of things that I'm not entirely sure about, starting with some musings about vinyl. Again, alan at alancross.ca. Let me know if I'm on the right track. The whole vinyl resurrection can be traced to a bunch of dudes in Baltimore who ran independent record stores. They were getting killed. No one was coming into the stores anymore because of digital music and piracy. How could they possibly revive their fortunes and save their businesses? That's when they started discussing Comic Book Day, an annual event staged by comic book stores designed to attract people with free and exclusive product. It had done wonders to increase revenues in the customer base, not to mention the popularity of comic books. What if we were to do something similar with records, they thought. And so, Record Store Day was born. After the first Record Store Day in 2008, vinyl sales took off as more and more people got back into the format or into it for the first time. Year after year of double-digit growth, not just in the U.S., but in countries around the world, things became so crazy that not only did old mothballed pressing plants come back online, but new manufacturers started up from scratch with brand-new, just-designed, state-of-the-art equipment. And lo, it was good for many, many years. It got to the point that in 2020, the dollar value of vinyl sold exceeded that of CDs in the United States. That hadn't happened since 1986. More money was being made from vinyl than from compact discs. Wow, did not see that coming. But here's the question. How long can this last? I spoke with some people deeply involved with the vinyl industry and I found them to be skeptical about how much longer this will go on, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the record labels have become a little greedy, selling new vinyl at ridiculous prices. And I know what he's talking about. I have a copy of Daft Punk's Random Access Memories album on two 180-gram slabs of vinyl that retailed for $45. That's insane. You want to kill a good thing? Charge too much for it. Second, supply issues. In early 2020, there was a fire at a plant in California that made 80% of the world's lacquer masters, the thing pressing plants need to manufacture new vinyl. No lacquer masters, no new albums. And that led to production delays and, yes, higher prices. And third, COVID-19. That killed off a lot of record stores, both those that traded in new music and those that sold used vinyl. Me? Uh, Well, I've been into the vinyl resurrection almost since it started, and I've added a considerable amount of linear feet to my collection, and I've also purchased a really good turntable. I'll have these records forever, but I really do worry about what the future has in store. And that's it. 
that's all I've got for this right now, but I'm working on expanding this. One more theory, and I will admit that this is completely half-baked. Is it possible that the guy who wrote The Rainbow Connection for Kermit the Frog and the Muppets, not to mention the co-writer of The Super Sappy We've Only Just Begun for the Carpenters, invented goth music? Okay, I told you half-baked, but stay with me on this. The guy we're talking about is Paul Williams. In 1974, he was hired by director Brian De Palma to star in and write the music for Phantom of the Paradise, a strange rock musical horror comedy loosely based on the Phantom of the Opera. It tells the story of poor Winslow Leach, whose music is stolen by the evil Swan, that's Paul Williams' character, and then horribly disfigured in a bizarre vinyl pressing plant accident. He then dons a disguise and terrorizes people at the Paradise, which is Swan's music venue. Long story short, things end poorly for everybody involved. The movie was a complete box office flop everywhere in the world, except, bizarrely, in Winnipeg, where it stayed in theaters for months. Not only that, but the movie and its soundtrack became an essential part of the musical DNA of that city. Now, trust me on this, because this is where I'm from, and I saw it happen firsthand. It's so ingrained that my sister used to be part of a Phantom of the Paradise tribute band. They performed at annual Phantom of the Paradise festivals in the city events that have attracted stars from the movie to make guest appearances. What I'm trying to say is that Winnipeggers are very, very, very familiar with the movie and its soundtrack, while the rest of the world doesn't have a clue and frankly doesn't care. But back to my theory. The whole genesis of everything goth is Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein, which was published in 1818. She was pretty much the first person to come up with this idea of blending horror, death, romance, science fiction, and the macabre all together in a dark, spooky way. Now, back to the movie. In Phantom of the Paradise, Swan's rock opera, which is the story within the story, contains a sequence featuring the construction of a Frankenstein-like monster named Beef. The entire scene of the movie features a made-up band called the Undead. The singer of the Undead is a dude named Peter Ebling. He is made up in corpse paint, kind of like what you would see with modern death metal or black metal, and so is the rest of the band. Add all this together, plus the music, and we either have a proto-goth band or a proto-death metal group, or both, from 1974. When you consider that what we now call goth music did not emerge until bands like Bauhaus appeared in the late 1970s, and death metal didn't appear until the middle 80s, Can we say that Paul Williams, the guy who wrote songs for the Muppets, accidentally invented both? We need a man that can stand as a symbol, and symbols have got to be tall. Someone with taste and the tiniest ways, with his help would not life be a ball. Like I said, some of my theories that I've espoused on this program haven't been entirely firmed up yet. It, It is possible that I have a little more thinking to do on them. But again, Like I said at the beginning of the show, feel free to offer your peer review analysis of these thoughts and musings. If you would like to continue the dialogue, drop me a line through alan at alancross.ca. We could have a go at it. Let's just call this an intellectual exercise, okay? Meanwhile, there are hundreds of ongoing history podcasts available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other platforms. Just download and go. They're all free, of course. Ratings and recommendations are welcome, too. 
We can also gather on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget about my website, which is a journal of It's updated all the time and it comes with a free daily newsletter. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go off and think some more. Textbook Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Art Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first? And explain exactly what you guys will be doing. And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects to sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now, now now you're just bragging. <laughs> <laughs> Corn, John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now, it's still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Popstar. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, and we're two kids from Brampton, Ontario that uh, went out to, you know, make art that broke out to the world. And now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay. How are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean, we're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker. So it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our, of the show was with Dave Myers. Um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. And just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done. And, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about black lives matter. 
uh, on that podcast, him being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moment. And and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what what went into to make that product and, and that, that piece of art affair is the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. Because I've, I've always, I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? <laughs> what kind of headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things? Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah, it's, it's, and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the eighties era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era, watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and, uh, uh, and Aerosmith, and I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the Hungry Like a Wolf video. Like, what the hell compelled you guys being this jungle and 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 just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at architects pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Catex with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.